You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. For the last couple of weeks as we've been working through the book of Acts, one of the things... Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That I've been saying is that, that the movement of following Jesus wasn't something that was completely new. It wasn't a new religion that was being birthed out of thin air, but it was rising up out of the Jewish faith. It had new interpretations of the Jewish scriptures. There were new paradigms in terms of how people understood salvation and the Messiah. There were new mental models to think about what God was doing in the world. But all of it was still coming up out of the Jewish tradition. It was still using the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish faith. It was holding to ideas like covenant and holiness and Messiah. And while it held to the scriptures and these ideas that had long persisted in the Jewish faith, it was reimagining what they meant in new ways. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to do some background work that I think will help us to continue to see the connection between this new movement of Jesus and his followers to the Jewish faith or the Jewish religious life. We're going to see that connection, and then we're going to see how God is fulfilling the scriptures of the Old Testament in this new community of believers. And so I want to do that by looking at a tradition, or a historical tradition, that I kind of mentioned in passing a few weeks back. But I want to pull that back into the forefront and spend just a little bit of time talking about it to set up what happens in Acts chapter 2, in verses 42 to 47. There is a tradition in the Jewish faith that's, that believes that the law of God was given to the Israelites on Pentecost. And there's a reason for this historical tradition. In Acts chapter 12, God commands Israel regarding the first Passover. So if you remember, the first Passover happens while Israel is still enslaved in Egypt. The last plague of Killing the firstborn son is about to descend upon Egypt. And so the Israelites have been commanded to kill a a lamb, to take its blood and put it on the doorpost. And whoever's doorpost has the blood on it, the Spirit of God is going to pass over. This was to be done on the 14th day of the first month. Right? So Passover... And, and, then, and then the Lord passes over, and then the next day, the 15th, is when Israel leaves Egypt. So this is when the Passover happens. 
at the, the night of the 14th and then the 15th, the, Israel leaves Egypt. So that's Exodus chapter 12. Then we get to Exodus chapter 19. At this point, Israel has now arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we're told that they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai on the first day of the third month. So they leave on the 15th day of the first month. And then they arrive at Mount Sinai on the first day of the third month. So roughly, there's 40 days. 40 days from leaving Israel. Uh, Egypt to arriving at Mount Sinai. Moses then goes up on Mount Sinai and we're told he goes up there for a few days, right? So now you've got Israel, they travel for 40 days, they arrive at Mount Sinai, they maybe make camp for a day or two. Moses goes up on the mountain for a couple of days, comes back down and he comes down carrying the two tablets, the law. Roughly 50 days after Passover. Take that, hold on to it. The law is coming down the mountain in Moses' hands roughly 50 days after the Passover. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 16 tells us that there are three times during the year in which all of the men of Israel are to come before the Lord at either the tabernacle or the temple. The first time is Passover. The second time is the festival of Shavuot. And the third time is the festival of Sukkot or the festival of booths. Shavuot is also known as the festival of weeks or the festival of first fruits. According to Deuteronomy 16, Shavuot is to be celebrated seven weeks after Passover. 50 days, right? That's actually where the name Pentecost comes from. Shavuot is the Hebrew name for this festival. When that Shavuot gets translated to Greek, it's called Pentecost. Pentecost was originally the celebration of first fruits or this celebration of weeks. But it also lined up 50 days with the giving of the law. So at the time of Acts chapter 2, Jerusalem is filled with Jewish people from around the world because it is now 50 days after Passover. We are now at the festival of Shavuot, one of those designated holidays or festivals in which all of the Jewish men, all of the men of Israel are to come before the Lord at the temple. 50 days after Passover, there's a celebration of God and God's good gifts that God has given to the people. The good gifts that God has given in the harvest. And also, the good gift of giving the law. The law that was given to the people after they were redeemed from Egypt. But now, now we're 50 days out, and we're not just 50 days out from the Passover, but we're also 50 days out from Christ's death. Remember, Christ died at Passover. 50 days out from that time in which God redeemed humanity from sin and death. And now, now on this day, there's another gift coming. But this time, it isn't more laws and commands. This time, the gift is God's self in the Holy Spirit. And with the gift of the Spirit comes life. 
Paul talks about how the Spirit brings life. There's something interesting that Paul says when he talks about the Spirit bringing life. Because Paul contrasts that with the law because the law brings what? Death. Now, I think Paul is hitting on a theological or a spiritual reality about how we as human beings can't fully keep the law or that the commands and the laws that, that they, as they are impressed upon us, as we seek to fulfill them on our own strength, how that brings death or it reveals that we are deserving of death through sin. Like, I think that, that there's that reality and it's being contrasted against life in the Spirit, which, which frees us up from having to fulfill those on our own. But now in the Spirit, Christ himself is fulfilling the law for us on our behalf and in us, right? Like, I think that's all happening. But I just also can't help but wonder if Paul isn't connecting these two events in another way. You see, when Moses went up on the mountain, God gave Moses the law. Moses comes down and shares it with the people. And the people rejoice at it. And and the people make a commitment. We will keep this law. We will do what God commands for us. And Moses is like, great, that is awesome. And he heads back up the mountain for a few days. But while he's up there, the people essentially reject the law. And they form a golden calf. And they begin to worship the golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain and he sees what's happening and he is enraged that the people have rejected the law that God has just given them. So Moses turns to the Levites and he tells the Levites, I want you to punish those who are responsible for this. Those who have rejected the law need to be put to death. And we're told on that day the Levites killed about 3,000 people. Look with me, if you've got your Bibles open, at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Do you remember Acts chapter 2? The disciples are in the upper room. uh, The Spirit comes in and descends upon the disciples in the form of fiery tongues. The uh, The disciples then go out into the streets and they preach the gospel. Peter proclaims the gospel in the streets. And then verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about three thousand were added to their number that day. How many died at Sinai? Three thousand. How many gave their life to Christ? About three thousand. And they're both happening on Pentecost or around Pentecost, that time in which God gave Israel the law and God gave the church the spirit. Like these kind of connections don't just happen by coincidence. Both God and the biblical writers are way too intentional for that to just be like a weird fun fact of connection. Over and over again we have God connecting what is happening in Acts 2 in the text, to what happened at Sinai. At Sinai, God gave the law, and the law brought death. But at Pentecost, God gave the Spirit, and the Spirit brought life. But not a life that is independent of God. This life that God gives is a life in the Spirit where one is dependent upon and yielding to the work of God in one's life and in the world. Life in the Spirit recognizes that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And at Pentecost, God's Spirit moves out of the temple 
and into the street as God inhabits and animates his people. See, no longer is the spirit there in the temple, in the tabernacle. But now, now the spirit is here. It's in me and it's in you. And because we are now those who live according to the Spirit and who are dependent upon the Spirit, and because we are now the ones in whom God is, like in Christ God has fulfilled the law and now the Spirit of Christ is in us, it begs the question, how then do we live? What does it mean to live now by the Spirit? And I think Acts chapter 2 is one big explainer of that. And in particular, these last few verses. So look at verse 42. They, these that have given themselves to Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now this portrait of the early church often gets romanticized. Many treat it as if there was this time in the church's life in which this kind of fellowship dominated the community. And maybe it did. Maybe there was a time for which this was the dominant ethos. Maybe it was like a day or two. I think it was relatively short because Luke doesn't just let, give us this perfect picture of the church. And this is one of the great things as Luke is a historian and a documenter of the life of the early church. While he gives us this picture in in these five verses, five chapters later, he's also going to give us a picture in which the community and the people within the community aren't necessarily fulfilling this picture. It's all going to fall apart because you have this couple who then lies to the community about what they've given to the community. And we know it's not just something that happens in Acts because we've got the letters of Paul for, to the church in Galatians and, and, and to the church in Corinth, right? This, these things, this picture doesn't necessarily last. And so for me, that, that begs another question. If this isn't a picture that lasts, if this isn't the way that the community operated for a long period of time, why does Luke include it? Why does Luke give us these, this 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 beautiful, idyllic picture of the church and how they interacted with one another. Why does he tell it in terms that, prevent, that, that present it as something that's almost perfect, that we all long for, that we hope for? Despite the fact that in just a couple chapters, he's going to kind of go, yeah, but it, it wasn't all that great. There was some, still some stuff going on. Why not do that right up front? I think one of the reasons is that we have to see this this depiction of the church that's in Acts 2, 42 to 47. We have to see that as as much of the work of the Spirit 
as the fire on top of the disciples' heads. I think, again, modern delineations in the Bible can be helpful, but sometimes they can cause us to miss out on the floor of a story. I think Luke intended for us to read about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the preaching in the streets by Peter and the other disciples and the conversion of the 3,000 and the life of the early church. I think he intended for that to all be read in one shot and to be seen as the totality of the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is drawing people to Jesus and in drawing people to Jesus is drawing people to each other. And as they are drawn together, they find their lives and their purposes and their time and their talents and their treasures all caught up in the life of the Spirit as much as their hearts were. I think what Luke intended for us to see was that when we as the church live according to the Spirit, we fulfill God's intent for Pentecost. Here's what I mean by that. You have to remember that Pentecost is the Greek name for the Jewish festival of Shavuot. Shavuot is a, is a festival that was celebrated that both the giving of the law, it celebrated giving of the law, and it celebrated the harvest. It was a way of thanking God for God's gifts and God's provision. In in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, God gives Israel's commands for how they should thank God for all that God has given them. And and, and even thank God in return, like how they should celebrate Shavuot. So the first thing is when they celebrate Shavuot, they bring uh, offerings to the tabernacle or to the temple. And they present those offerings to the Lord, the offerings of first fruits. Remember, it's the festival of first fruits. They offer their sacrifices of first fruits as a way of thanking God and recognizing that all that they have comes from God. But there's another piece to the celebration of the harvest, or to the harvest itself that Leviticus spells out. In Leviticus 19, maybe you remember this from our study of Leviticus last year. In Leviticus 19, it says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest, meaning anything that's fallen to the ground. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, the right celebration of Shavuot or Pentecost in the Old Testament was to ensure that those who had shared with those who did not. The whole point of leaving some of your harvest in the fields was so that those who didn't have food, those who didn't have fields of their own, could come in and could gather what they needed for them and their families. It's a way of saying, what I have, I will share with you. So that we both have. Look again at Acts chapter 2. Start at verse 44. 
all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. What Luke records in Acts chapter 2 at the end there appears to be a fulfillment of God's command regarding the festival of the harvest and sharing with those who did not have. And you can't help but wonder if this isn't one of the ways in which the early church grew. I mean, if you're a Jewish people, remember, this is primarily who the first converts were. They were in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem was filled with those who have come in to celebrate Shavuot. And so you, you have to wonder if one of the reasons that the church grew is because Jewish people are wondering, is this for real? Is this thing that is happening truly a work of God in connection with Pentecost? And the sign for them about whether or not it would be connected with Pentecost is if Pentecost is being fulfilled. Are the poor being cared for? Are those who have needs having those needs met? Are people looking out for one another? You, I wonder if Luke includes this story, even though it may have been short-lived, even though it may be, may be a little bit idyllic, even if it is just a summary and doesn't tell the whole story because this this is a Pentecost story in its truest sense. It's meant to point to God's fulfillment of the Old Testament. What God began at Sinai, God is fulfilling in the church through the Spirit. And the mark of the believers is their willingness to see each other and each other's needs and ensure that those needs are met. And Paul talks about the mark of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. You know, joy, peace, love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. He talks about that. But sometimes, like, how do you measure that, right? It becomes a little bit of a question of, of how do you make those tangibles? What does it really look like when it's lived out? And maybe this is it. Maybe the mark of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is our willingness to look at others and ask what do you need that I have? Maybe this is one of the signs. And so often when we think about signs, we think, of, we think of the big things and the miracles and the supernatural, right? Speaking in tongues is a sign. Healing the sick is a, is a sign. Uh, the, the, the blind being able to see, that, that's a sign. But getting someone to intentionally leave crops in a field, i.e. money behind, so that the needy can come in and pick up what they need? I'd argue that's a miracle. Getting people to see the need of another and say, I will sell my possessions and what belongs to me so that your need is met? I'd argue that that is in fact a miracle. It's a miracle back then and I would dare say it's even a greater miracle today. And, and, and I want to be really clear, what we're talking about here is not some call to communism and it isn't the idea of elimination of private property. I think when this text gets tied to some political ideologies, as with all texts, I think that that's a bad thing. But I think we have to acknowledge that this text is challenging cultural ideas and challenging political ideologies. 
I mean, because what we're talking about here is actually greater than anything political. What we're talking about here is a complete giving up of exclusive rights to possessions and property. You have medical bills? I've got an extra car. I'll sell it. It's not really mine anyways. You need grocery money? I'll cancel my Netflix and my Disney Plus so that I can contribute to your monthly needs. You have a need? What do I have that I then can give to you? And listen, I, I understand that this sounds, it sounds both foreign and extreme. I, I, I get it. I feel the resistance in me. I can make a really good case for why I need both my cars or why selling one would be impractical. I can, I can do all of that. But I think our resistance to, to what's laid out here in this section of Acts gets at another reason as to why Luke may have included this story. Maybe Luke includes it to force the question, if the gravitational pull of the life of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, was to live in a community like this, how much energy and what kind of force is necessary to pull us out of it? Right? If, if, if the people are taken captive by the story of the God who gives his life for them and then gives the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is that they hold all things in common and they're willing to sell their possessions so that another has their needs met. If that's the gravity, like if things move in that direction as one comes into life of the Spirit, what then pulls us out of it? And it has to be, it has to be something intense. It has to be something that, that is beyond us. And we can talk about sin and we can talk about, you know, the devil if we want to. But I think we also have to talk about cultural expectations and cultural ideas around private property and what it means to have and status and, and ideas about scarcity and all of these other things. Because... Because this is life in the Spirit, and yeah, life in the Spirit may be radical, but this is something that is held up as an example. It's held up as something that we as Christians should strive for. And, and, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that it's more than just, like what's happening in Acts is more than just giving up some, some of our possessions or donating some of our extra to good causes and helping with with things as time and energy allow for it. I mean, we do that, and others do that. There's nothing supernatural about that, and the Spirit isn't necessarily required for charity. But what Luke talks about here is much more than just charity and much more than donating some of our extra. What Luke talks about here isn't even just giving up of possessions. It, it's deeper than that. It's about giving up ourself. 
I will give up myself, my hopes, my dreams, my desires, my feelings of importance, the things that I hold to, the things that give me uh, 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 feelings of, of having arrived or feelings of security. I will give those up in order to meet you. Just as my Savior laid down his life for me, I will lay down my life for you so that you might live. And, and, and from there, from that Point. The Spirit then animates us by fusing us with the life and the death of, the, of Jesus Christ. And in that, we find a whole new definition of generosity. It's fuller. It's deeper. It's an offering that includes possessions and times and talents and treasures, but it's, but it's working from a completely different place. It's working from a willingness to lay down my life. And from that willingness, we witness to the reign of God's love through the Son, empowered by the Spirit, as we live our life together. And so I, I don't think that this passage in Acts chapter 2 is just a nice picture of the church. I don't think it is something to be romanticized. I think it is something to be seen as only the work of the Holy Spirit. What happens in verses 42 to 47 is a work of the Spirit as much as the tongues of fire. And maybe even more so. For it pulls, it, it, it goes against human nature to its very core. And so I pray, as we think about what does it mean to be a church in 2021, what does it mean to be a church who gives witness to the death and life, or the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we would be a church that would be marked by the Spirit of Christ who is willing to lay down his life for another. And that we would continue to press into generosity. We are already such a generous church. And I hear that from our mission partners. I see it and I hear it in your concern for one another as you meet needs, as you offer care, as you bring meals and so much else. And one of the joys that I have is that so often it happens outside of the centralized institution of the church. And what I mean by that is it's not coming into the office and then the office we're trying to find people. That oftentimes what I hear is that there's a need that has risen out in the church community and people are already responding to it by the time I hear of it. That is beautiful and it is good and it is right. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for following the Spirit. But I also want us to encourage us to see our, our giving to each other and our meeting of needs is not just something we do because we're nice people. And it's not just something we do because we've got extra time here and there, but it's something that we do because we are marked by the one who has given to us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. May we be a church who lays down its life for others. And may we give witness to the God who has so generously given as we generously give of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the ways in which it unites us to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, for the ways in which it empowers us to live as witnesses to the work that you are doing. May we witness with signs and wonders, with prayers that are answered for healing and We pray that the supernatural would work through us, but we also pray that we would be a people who give generously because Christ has died for us. We pray that this would witness to the kingdom of God that is already at work in our midst. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.